Some of those lessons I would have had to learn no matter what. A lot of that pain was my own stupidity, greed, and FOMO. I'm Pep Lyon. I don't do fluff. I don't do filler. I don't do emojis. What I do is study winners in B2B SaaS because I want to know how much is strategy, how much is luck, and how do they win. This week, Adam Robinson, CEO of Retention.com, which enables companies to email their anonymous visitors so they could close more sales. In this interview, Adam shares his journey from identifying a market cap to creating a differentiated product in a competitive space. He discusses the challenges of scaling, the importance of product market fit, and offers valuable insights for B2B founders. This conversation is a deep dive into strategic thinking and execution in a dynamic world of SaaS. Let's get into it. This company was born from my prior company, which was in the email newsletter and marketing automation space. I had spent years trying to figure out what this massive incumbent called MailChimp wasn't doing. I had heard 18 months before I figured out how to do what the core product was, that it was possible to resolve an anonymous website visitor to an email address without them filling out a form. It sounded like magic to me. I also found out that it was legal and I was like, man, I don't know how to do that. I'm going to keep trying to figure out other stuff MailChimp's not doing, but if I could figure out how to do that, I just feel like knowing these people that are buying my email newsletter app from me, like I could sell this to anybody. List growth is the hardest problem in the world. And I couldn't see any legitimate attempt at this going on in the market. What was the first product that you brought to the market? My intention was to grow my email marketing and marketing automation app with this identity technology. The company was called Robly Email Marketing. It started off as a feature inside of this email newsletter app called Robly ID. I was very optimistic about my ability to grow the email marketing tool with this identity feature because my view was the big incumbents could not actually even do it because they had to be a part of this self-regulatory deliverability organization called MOG if they wanted a direct line into Gmail. I found a feature that not only no one has, that literally no one else can build. This is gonna be amazing. So what happened? <laughs> People would sign up for our app, they'd use the ID tool, they'd download the file, put it in Clavio, and tell us it was amazing. I read a bunch of stuff about product market fit. I certainly didn't have it at my email newsletter app. That is a telltale sign. When someone's willing to endure a horrible user experience and still give you a very high MPS score, you are onto something. How did it now become a, a standalone? We launched that feature in April. So for three or four months, I was just having conversations all day long with our current customers at Robly that were using it. And it just became clear to me that if we're trying to get people to switch onto our, quite frankly, crappy email app to use this product, it wasn't a good product. If we would spin it out and connect it to everything, it could be a great product. Around August, I was like, we need to make this a separate app. My CTO, Tate, took him six weeks to make the V1 of the back end. We launched the product on November 9th with a Facebook video. Spent $5,000 on ads that month, 10,000 MRR. If I spent $5,000 on ads advertising the email marketing product, I wouldn't have gotten $500 of MRR. It wasn't all good though. User churn was 20% a month. It was this incredible dynamic though where the larger your traffic was, the more you'd pay us. So we'd get these whales that would come in and pay us five, ten thousand $10,000 a month off of Facebook ads. <laughs> it was just like really fabulous 
payback time, but horrible churn scenario that allowed us to spend a lot of money to create awareness in the beginning, which was fantastic. Which uh, audience did you then figure out is the primary buyer for this? And then how long did it take you to, to hit 1 million in revenue? So it took maybe eight, eight months. We had no idea who the primary buyer actually was. I have a weekly chart of our MRR because I was reading a lot of Y Combinator stuff and they were like tracking weekly growth is a good metric to keep people aligned in the beginning. When growth goes away, that leads to burnout in many cases. So the story of this business was we'd get to a point, it'd flatten out, and then we'd come up with something else to get it to the next level. And it flattened out because of churn. We started this business six months before COVID. It's like 50K MRR and it went down to 20 when COVID hit, but then it went back up as the world readjusted. We still had no idea that e-commerce would eventually be the market that we were focusing on. And if you look at this weekly growth, it flattened out for nine months, at least maybe even a year at around 200K MRR. Then we started prospecting e-commerce because their churn was just meaningfully lower than whoever else. It was kind of a spray and pray, right? Like we're getting a lot of info products guys, some publishers, some affiliate sender type people. But when we focused on email prospecting to e-commerce, it was enough to where the acquisition side was so good that the business could get substantially larger than where it was stuck for nine months. And that e-commerce audience, you figured out that that's a good audience based on those data analysis metrics, or were you also conducting interviews? We didn't decide to stop selling to everyone else literally until August of last year. Two years in, we started prospecting to e-commerce. Three years in, it became clear that they were so much better and very specifically a certain type of e-commerce store, the very largest Shopify brands. So there's like, there's two and a half million Shopify stores. There's 10,000 at the top of that ecosystem that have the right mindset to just immediately understand the value of this and implement it without even asking questions and pay a ton because they have a lot of traffic. Um, they were so much, these guys would never churn. They'd invite all their friends. Like they were just when you define what a power user is, like these guys were that. I wish there was a way for us to have recognized that sooner. If we had people trying to define these buyer personas and we're looking at metrics by persona, we probably could have come across it sooner. Power users, also called super consumers. Supers represent less than 10% of the customers, but they drive up to 30 to 70% of sales and almost all of the insights. And they're ready to pay you more than what you're charging them. Here's Eddie Yoon, the author of the book, Super Consumers, to explain. This idea of, it's, it's just people who wax poetic about the category. So that's the other distinction. Not only do they have to buy a lot, use a lot, and care a lot, it has to be at the category level. Because I, I think the mistake that people often assume that it is, it's about a brand yeah. super consumer. And that the category super consumers, what I found is that they buy multiple brands across yeah. the most expensive and the least expensive private mm -hmm. label. And they're the most honest about what they will tell you about what's the good, bad, and the ugly about your category and your brand. Yes. And that honest feedback that has a real depth of knowledge is pretty rare, I found. You get to one million in revenue. How did your sales and marketing evolve and product strategy evolve after that point? I had never run a Facebook ad, but it was only successful for six months. And then... Probably one of the reasons we hit a lull is because that stopped working and we hadn't really figured out the cold email side for e-commerce. A year in, we figured that out. We have a team in the Philippines, cold email prospecting with a very basic value proposition, driving this inbound machine again. 
And then fast forward till now, we're at 22 million ARR. That cold email machine got us to 12. And then the next level is putting in place a very expensive in-person sales motion that's driving people to small and medium-sized events that we're throwing. It's just astronomically less efficient than this cold email machine, but the cold email machine only gets you to a certain point. At this point in that world, we're playing this penetration game. And sadly, penetration games can be very expensive if they're not viral. Adam's journey shows the importance of evolving market strategies. Bitly CMO Tara Robertson touches on the same topics in her presentation on customer marketing strategies. Scaling intentionally and making trade-offs. One of the number one things that people ask me is, what am I looking for? It's about figuring out focus and making sure that you understand what the trade-offs are that you need to make in order to prioritize your team to work on the most important things. Otherwise, your customer marketing team will get seen as the swag management department, which is not what you want. If you chase two rabbits, they will eventually both escape. So it's really about picking that one thing. You said you had six people and then you decided to speed it up, turn up the volume. It's a story about this guy, Dave Roganmoser. I met Dave in 2019 when I moved to Austin and we were a couple of guys that they were stuck at two and a half million ARR. I was stuck at 3 million ARR and Dave was like first paying customer happened seven days ago by January 1st of the following year, they were at 50 million ARR month later, they closed 200 million at a 1.5 B. I would have not thought that it applied to me, but mm -hmm. sitting in the room with this guy who I had been stuck in the exact same spot with for two years and then watching them do something that I knew very well, I was totally capable of doing myself. I was like, yeah, I could probably go bigger too. So you hired all these people and then what happened? When I reflect on what I did, I got this massive FOMO. If we do not go get this right now and go as big as humanly possible, we're going to miss it. I hired way too many people way too quickly. All of that activity creates this halo around your business that can create metrics and indicators that are very misleading, that are far more positive than they actually are. I thought there were 50,000 stores in the Shopify ecosystem that we could do a 30K ACV deal with and close in seven days because it's basically this inbound sales motion. That was just wrong. Now I think... There's six to 10,000 stores that we can do a 15K deal with, close in three weeks. And I think a lot of the reason we were getting those incorrect indicators is because, you know, you get some product market fit, you start making a lot of noise and people are just coming to you and like buying what I, you know, this is crazy. We were overselling people for five months. How painful it is to have that come crashing down on you the next five months. <laughs> As every deal that you close is contracting in your face, people are pissed off, they're canceling. Your new business pipeline as you close deals are substantially smaller than the ones you were closing with a substantially smaller TAM is not making up for this contraction that you're feeling. It's absolutely terrible. When you go that fast, you don't have the proper system set up. You don't know how to manage an organization that size. It was all horrible. However, we managed to grow 60%. We are operating like a 60-person company at the end of the day. Those indicators made us over hire salespeople. And then there was a point where it was clear that it wasn't working. Our VP sales resigned. We had 20 salespeople and we were forced with the option of either replacing him and trying to make it work with these 20 salespeople, which I didn't like at all because I thought that, it, you know, basically this made me come to this conclusion, which I write a lot about on LinkedIn, that 
in today's world, there is a pipeline crisis and SDRs and BDRs are not the ones creating demand. The things that are creating demand are things like we're doing right now. And you can't measure it. Like somebody will hear this that will buy something that I sell someday. They won't even remember that the first time they heard me talk was on this podcast. But I'm doing multiple of these a week, right? Like indiscriminately, so long as it's like within the TAM of people that are going to buy this B2B product. So anyway, I wanted a fast inbound sales org. We shrunk the team to four. Our pipeline sped up. But it was terrible, man. I mean, it was like, you know, you do a big layoff like that. Like my glass door reviews are absolute shit. The whole team's scared because they think they're coming next. But, you know, our attrition, our quarterly attrition in the last two quarters has been like 1% or something like that. It's super stable now. But some of those lessons I would have had to learn no matter what. A lot of that pain was my own stupidity, greed, and FOMO. You changed your go-to-market engine from sales-focused to content-focused. Is that right? I thought I was facing an awareness battle more than anything else. I knew those Facebook ads worked, but I didn't think they were going to work for this because the market was so small. There's no way you could segment for this tiny audience. I was basically convinced that LinkedIn was a good platform to start creating content for to draw eyes to a personal profile. People are on social media to follow people, not companies. I, I, I firmly believe in that now. I've gotten pretty good at it. I started creating content to help this effort, but at the end of the day, it just, I think it just helps everything. The motion that we have now is we have a very focused list of 1200 accounts. We are trying in every way possible to have our salespeople get them to an event so that we can meet them in person and start a sales motion. We're literally designing events that are good enough to get these people out of their seats during the day. We're creating a video asset during the event with the sole intention of making the event look so awesome that we could send it to our prospects and get them to the next one. It's a super focused thing, but for the Shopify world, it's just revolving around dinners and pizza tours. And we have this wellness pop-up that we do called the Detox Retox Retreat. That is the motion that ended up working for us in that world. You know, it's like everybody's business is so different. It's like, I firmly believe that nothing that I say will actually work if it were copied, which is why I'm so transparent in building in public. But there is so much to be learned in terms of inspiration from listening to other people that are actually in the game, trying and failing and winning and like whatever else, right? You came from a space that was <laughs> total sameness, email marketing. Now you have a substantially differentiated business. How's that for you? And was this di differentiation a goal? Did you stumble upon it? The sameness is just hard. One of our core values is create magical products. This product that, that get emails, which is now retention.com. When you describe it to somebody who owns a Shopify store, who's never heard of it. Their face lights up. They think it's magic. If I can explain to somebody in one sentence who would be the buyer of the product, and I notice their facial expression lighting up as they understand what it is. That only works if you're in a very differentiated space. Because otherwise, it's like, oh, you're just talking to me about an email marketing app. I don't give a shit. I have one. It's amazing not have competition in the first place. If you can look out a few years and big people are not going to infringe on this market of yours, we've built enough of a brand to where these little guys kind of don't have much of a shot because the trust that we have built in this ecosystem, 
you'd never choose somebody who's coming in and offering it at half the price. It's just, you wouldn't do it. Adam is talking about creating a different product in a sea of sameness. This was the very problem I was solving when I was running CXL, the e-learning business. It's a space with infinite competition and minimal differentiation. Then I got this idea for a business that eventually became Winter. It's totally differentiated. There's not a single business that's doing exactly what we're doing. There are many adjacent players for sure, but no direct competitors. And what that has done for us is everything. We get 100% of the word of mouth for our product category, B2B message testing and target market insights, because there's literally nobody else to recommend. And that's huge. And we're not getting dismissed on the basis of, we already have one, like what happened to Adam and his email marketing tool. Looking back at all your experiences, what would be some of your like top three advice, pieces of advice for B2B founders? I would seek spaces that are not already horribly competitive. It's just so much easier. When you can explain to somebody what you do and they think that it's new, they will stop and listen. If they think they've heard it before, they will not. I like bootstrapping tech companies. A lot of people do not. A lot of people feel like they don't have the option. I think there's alternative funding methods to the VC model. I think that there's like this friends and family thing that hasn't been explored where you could like raise a few hundred thousand and just do it differently. In order to make that work, I think you have to have a very high standard for product market fit. I got to 12 million ARR with six people. If the product was not great, that couldn't have happened. The reason that that is happening, I believe, is because the demand for what we are selling in the competitive landscape is such that the fast inbound business model, so capital efficient, if you plan to bootstrap. If you can pull it off, there's no better life. That's piece of advice number two. And then, man, piece of advice number three is once you start, don't do what I did. <laughs> like the FOMO part, right? R regardless of what's going on, it's like on one hand, I was running that business too lean at six people and 12 million ARR. My own mindset was holding me back in many ways. If I had continued on the path that I was on, there would be no way that I could start a completely new business right now and have this other company just running by itself, growing and churning off cash. However, I did not need to do it in the way that I did it. It was very reckless, and I hope I don't have to learn those lessons again, but you never know. It's so easy to get caught up in the excitement. So how did retention.com win? One, they differentiated with an innovative product offering. I spent years trying to figure out what this massive incumbent called MailChimp wasn't doing. It was possible to resolve an anonymous website visitor to an email address without them filling out a form. Two, strategic focus on a specific target market. When we focused on email prospecting to e-commerce, it was enough to where the acquisition side was so good that the business could get substantially larger than where it was stuck for nine months. Three, they have focused go-to-market motions. We have a very focused list of 1,200 accounts. We are trying in every way possible to have our salespeople get them to an event so that we can meet them in person and start a sales motion. And that's how you win. I'm Pep Lau. For more tips on how to win, follow me on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks for listening.